But today we're going to finish 2 Peter and look at the last two verses. But first, let's just recap for just a moment. Remember 2 Peter, as 1 Peter, was written to the church. It's written to God's people. It's written to believers. And for Christians, right, who were enduring through suffering, as 1 Peter uh, was, was written to, those who were enduring suffering through persecution. Now, 2 Peter is written to them that they would endure firmly in the knowledge of God as they persevere by avoiding and kicking out and separating from themselves false teachers with their errors and with their moral decay and their influence to not bring the church to flourishing, but for them to reap physical benefits, right, for their own good, they just wanted to destroy the church. So remember one of the big denials of these false teachers was their denial of the second coming of Christ. They denied that Christ would come back, and mainly the reason why is because if you deny the second coming of Christ, then you can deny judgment. And if there is no judgment, then guess what? You can do whatever you want. You can live any way you want. You can teach any, anything you want. And so 2 Peter brings us back to God's word, and particularly chapter 3, after chapter 2 being a very harsh chapter toward, uh, uh, rightly harsh, toward false teachers, now brings us back in chapter 3 to God's word, affirming the, the word of the holy prophets in the Old Testament and the words of Jesus Christ that he certainly is coming back. Scoffers are going to scoff at the truth. They're going to question with derision and with doubt to cause doubt. They're not questioning honestly, wanting to know the truth, but they're asking, uh, or they're asking questions to cause doubt, to bring about doubt within God's people. And Peter says, to not forget that he is coming back, that Christ is coming back. And when he does, chapter 3, verse 7, he is coming with fire. We are reminded, again, to consider God's divine perspective and his patience in regard to the timing of his coming and judgment. He is transcendent, and his perspective on time is, is not our own, so we must be careful from imposing our own view of time upon him. That's verse 8. He's not slow to judgment. We should not assume that just because he has not come back yet, that he's not going to bring judgment, but rather he is being slow in his judgment, as we would count slow, because of his divine patience in saving his people. He is saving his people, and he's granting Repentance, as verse 9 tells us. But the promise, as it says there in verse, or chapter 3, excuse me, is still intact because look at verse 10. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works and all done on it will be exposed. But for us, verse 13, listen to this. And there should be a hearty amen from all of God's people after we read this. That according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. amen. So let's look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care what, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and an errant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Do you remember all the way back, I believe it was the second or third sermon in this, in this book, the location or the, the place in life that, that Peter was when he wrote this letter? 
In chapter 1, Peter admits, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I make every effort so that, my, that after my departure, you may be able to stand, be able at any time to rec- uh, recall these things. Excuse me. Where was Peter in his life? He was at the end. These are his last days, and Peter knows it. It says Jesus made it clear to him that these are his last days. But he doesn't bring that up to to make us feel sorry for him or to feel bad for him or, or even for us to lift him up as some hero in the faith. No, rather he, he brings that up to us and reminds us of his upcoming death so as to describe the seriousness of what he is reminding them of, what he wants them to remember, what he wants them to know. And in these last two verses, verse 17 and 18, these are the last words of a dying man. These are the last words of Peter's last words. These are it. And we see exactly in these last two verses, again, what he wants us to be reminded of. In fact, these these last two verses are, are, are kind of a summary of the whole letter. In verse 17, there's a a clear break in the passage. You see, that's why we we stop there and and kind of put these two verses together. There's a clear break there with the word, therefore. Meaning, he's saying, everything that I wrote to you, right, in chapter 1, in chapter 2, all these things that I've already written to you in chapter 1, 2, and 3, do these things. Remember these things. Remember, that's why I'm here to remind you of these things. And then in verse 17, he also uses the last time in chapter 3 of five times, the last time he addresses the church, these Christians, as his dearly beloved, as his beloved. Some of your translations might say, uh, uh, dear friends, and I think that's a kind of weak. It should be beloved. This letter has been loving. I mean, there's been some harsh moments, clearly, toward the the false teachers, but it's about lovingly, tenderly, carefully shepherding the church to believe and to be what is certain in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in real ways that keeps them from error. That's loving them. It may be harsh. It may be hard to hear. Sometimes, as fathers, we have to say, harsh things to our children, not mean things, but harsh things to our, fa- our children for them to grasp the gravity of what they are doing that is wrong. And this is what Peter is doing. That's why he's saying, beloved. He also says there in verse 17, something I want to ask you in a question. Have you ever said to yourself or maybe to your wife or to your husband or to a friend, I I wish I would have known that beforehand? Yeah, yeah, Dick's like, yeah, I got you, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, man, I have. I have said it several times. The example, communicate directions to one another. I have missed a few turns and exits in my day and in my time more than I care to admit. And when I pass it, I generally hear, oh, that was our turn. I wish I would have known that beforehand. You know, when you're on 75, 85 in Atlanta, yeah, that's a good, that's a hard place to cross nine lanes of traffic. Regret happens from a lack of knowledge. But what Peter is saying here is you should have no regret. In in these areas, you should have no regret, beloved. 
You should have no excuses here because I want you to know these things beforehand, right? He didn't say that at the beginning. He said at the end, I've already said them to you. I don't want you to have regret in these things when you turn to error or that you're not growing in Christ. And so these are the last words of Peter's last words. And he wants us to know particularly two things, and then he ends with a doxology. And so, brothers and sisters, I've put it into a simple outline for us in three points. Guard, grow, and glorify. First, we are to be on guard. Not the first time we've heard this point. This application to be on guard and to be here, you know, to heed the warnings just runs throughout the Old and New Testament. There are warnings and caution signs everywhere in the Bible. Constantly warning the people of God to stay on the, the narrow road. For, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, essentially, God has already given them the, his clear commands, his clear commandments. And Moses says that they are, they're not far from you. They're not a mystery. They have been clearly revealed and, and given to you. And yet he still warns them there in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you today, by loving the Lord, your God, walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord, your God, will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It's not a warning. That's good. That's a promise. That's a great Glorious promise, verse 17. But if your hearts turn away and you do not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. The warnings are clear. And the consequences of this Men, if you've been with us on Thursday nights, you see the beginnings of those consequences in Judges. That is a strong and clear warning to the people of Moses. Do you want life and good, or do you want evil and death? It's one or the other, right? There's no middle road. And what Moses says, pouring out his life, for the good of these people is he wants them to choose life. He wants them to choose good by loving God, by being obedient to his commands and to holding fast to the Lord, knowing that God would bless them. He, wouldn't, he won't hold back from them. He's not going to hold back from them, but bless them and give them what they need. And Peter, in the same way, is warning these people, warning us, warning the church, those that he clearly loves in Christ, those he wants to see, to endure to the very end. And when we say end in context of 2 Peter, that is the second coming of Christ. He wants them to endure then and not be swayed and corrupted by, by evil voices or, or, or personalities to error. God's word says there in verse 17, he says, take care you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability. First, I think Peter, he's not teaching some theoretical warning to us, but he's speaking from experience to us when he says, take care. This isn't a... a a, a salutations or a, a goodbye. It's not a take care now. No, it's take care. You know, take care of your car and it'll run for you for a while. 
Well, unless you have junk, then hey. Take care. Be on guard. And Peter knows this not from theory, but he knows it from experience because Peter is not known only for writing these letters. Peter is not only known for being the surprisingly articulate fisherman from Galilee that preached so boldly on the day of Pentecost that God used to plant the church in Jerusalem and then would help establish the church throughout the Roman world. And he's not only known for being a martyr for Christ. What Peter is most likely, well, he's not most likely, he's probably known most for is his mistakes. And as we know Peter, on the most important night in the history of the world, what did Peter do? He bravely boasted, Jesus, I'm going to be with you. I won't let anything happen to you. And what does he end up doing? He ends up denying Jesus three times out of fear for his own life to little servant girls. No offense, ladies. Peter is known for his mistakes. But as I've said before, this is sort of one of the reasons why we kind of like Peter. Because we can understand and relate with him in our weakness. That even though we confess God so boldly and our commitment so boldly, that yet we still struggle with fear and the fear of man. But Peter also failed again publicly a second time. And it was so bad that, that Paul had to confront him, had to confront him in his sin. You see, Peter, in order to look good in front of some, some Jews of the circumcision party, he, he, he would fellowship with these, these Gentiles, and then when these Jews showed up, he began to remove some of his friendship and his fellowship from the Gentiles. Y'all know how that feels. You ever had a friend do that? Kind of weird. They kind of become a little bit quiet and cold towards you. That's what Peter did. Because he feared these Jews of the circumcision party instead of the Lord. And Peter, of all people, should have known this hypocrisy. Because he was the one in Acts chapter 10 that received the vision from the Lord that, that God was making all things clean, including the Gentiles. And then here comes the servant of Cornelius knocking on the door, the, the Roman centurion, asking for Peter to come. And Peter goes, then he preaches the gospel to this Gentile and to his family. And before he can finish preaching the gospel, Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down upon them and regenerates him and the whole family. But in this moment that Paul had to confront him, in that moment, he forgot the implications of all of that, and he shrunk back, fearing man instead of God. And that caused division in the church, as you can imagine. Such a way that it led Barnabas astray. Here's what I'm getting at. If Peter can become misaligned, and Barnabas as well, do we not think that we as well cannot have the potential or do not have the potential to fall away or to go astray from falling or go astray from the truth so not to hear such warnings that God's word gives us? Now, we're not to take this warning to, to guard ourselves and and to be careful, we're not to take this warning as, as something to dampen the assurance that Christians have in Christ. But rather, this warning is to the boost our assurance. Because assurance becomes reality when we heed such warnings from the Scripture. An experienced mountain climber will always heed the warnings of each climb that he does or that she takes. They will always know the condition. They will always know the, 
the weather. They'll always inspect their gear before and after to double check that everything's tied correctly, that there's no frays in any ropes, none of the ropes are, are old. They take into account who's going with them. Are they experienced? Do they know what they're doing? And why? Paying attention, understanding the, the weight and the gravity and the, the importance of mountain climbing, severity of mountain climbing, does not kill confidence, but rather it builds confidence. A good confidence, not arrogance, but a, but a good confidence. And we would do well here, brothers and sisters, that if we are to be confident in the work of Christ and confident in our assurance, then take care to be on guard Secondly, enticement comes from lawless people who will carry us into error. This is how apostasy happens. The word apostasy means to, to leave, to leave the faith, to walk away. And the same verb that Peter uses here to carry you away is the same verb that Paul used in Galatians 2 to describe what happened to Peter and to Barnabas. That they were swayed and carried away into error. At length, as we've already said, chapter 2 describes the lawless people. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing them upon themselves swift destruction. And many who follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Listen to this in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. These are the lawless, and these lawless are filled with this kind of error and greed that leads into sin and debauchery, that leads the church astray into destructive Heresies, and listen to it also. We've already talked about this, but destructive heresies that are brought in secretly, secretly, without you knowing. We must pay careful attention to anyone who changes the gospel to fit their desires and their agenda. He goes on in chapter 2 to say about these false teachers in verse 17 that they are waterless springs and mists driven by storms. This means they're just liars. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. What did we say last time about that verse? We said that there's a special place in hell for them. For speaking loud, boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. There are many different errors out there. All kinds. We, we could stay for hours and talk about all the different kinds of out, uh, errors out there. But these secret, destructive heresies, they will always come, even to us, they will come to us and they will sound spiritual. They will sound right. And they'll even sound somewhat biblical because there will be scripture verses attached to them. 
But remember, well, it'll always sound right because it'll always sound like freedom. Just like Paul, Peter just says, it'll sound like freedom. It'll promise freedom, but they themselves are enslaved to sin. Remember that even Satan quoted scripture to Jesus when attempting to tempt him in the wilderness. Now, I, I know that we are not swayed or tempted by prosperity preachers. I know we're not swayed by charismatic preaching and teachers. And I know we're not swayed necessarily by liberalism and liberal teachers. But we still are susceptible to error. One of the sure ways to find error is this. And hear me on this. That if your primary teachers are not your local elders or pastors, that you can see them with your own eyes and hear them with your own ears in person and observe their lifestyles, then you're setting yourself up for enticement into error. Now, I'm not condemning online resources and teaching. There's a lot of it that's really good, but there is a lot, a tremendous a lot of garbage out there. And there's a lot that I would commend to you and give to you and want you to, we want to put before you. However, it should never be the pro, what's primary to you. It should never be primary as the local church. As God has said, it's to be the primary source of authority that you are listening to. Test them to us, not the other way around. And then test all of us to God's word. And third, take care to not lose your stability. I love how Peter, he just comes full circle forward. So I told you it's kind of a summary of the whole letter. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. The stability in Christ has been his aim from the very beginning. That the church would be established in the truth that you already have, meaning what's already been preached to you by him, by the apostles, and now to us we have God's word. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's where we stand. We stand in Christ and his righteousness. That's where we are established. That's the, the firm foundation. That's the, the solid rock that we stand. In verse 10, he says, uh, uh, in the list of qualities in between, he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Never fall. Do you know what never fall means? It means never fall. It means you're always stable. You're not going to trip. You're not going to stumble. You're not going to be swayed. You're not going to crumble under the pressure. Christina and I have, have gotten into uh, paddleboarding, and pretty much what paddleboarding is, it's just a big, long, wide, and real thick surfboard, pretty much. But you don't stand on it like this. You stand square on it, right? So the board's long ways. You stand on it square, and, and we really had no idea. We can see people, you know, people doing it, and it's like, oh, it looks really cool. We want to do it. Um, but we wanted to know some tips, right? How do you do this? So we do what everybody does now. You go to YouTube and you type in, you know, how to paddleboard for beginners, right? And you always get about 7,000 videos. And I always pick the shortest ones because have, most of them are just filled with long-winded people. And these tips that we watched was from this dude out in Hawaii. Said, hey, that's a pretty cool place to learn from a guy who knows how to paddleboard. And, and they were helpful. They were, they were actually like, I wouldn't even thought of that. I, I've surfed a lot of my life. And I'm like, man, you know, decent balance. But his tips made a lot of sense. And you want to pay attention to those, uh, to those tips because even though you're in the water and you're 
have fun. You don't really want to fall in the water all the time, right? You want to do that on purpose. And you don't want to fall on the board, you'll hurt yourself, and you most definitely don't want to drown. Now, the video doesn't say we're going to give you guarantee that if you do these things, you'll always stay dry. But I have to say, so far, Christina and I have never fallen off our paddle boards. And we've been through some rough waves. We've been through some wind. And I even had to deal with Ryan trying to push me over on my paddleboard. It's been hard. It's been difficult at times. It's been rocky. But for the most part, we've been stable. We were been established in the foundation, the footing that we learned how to do and how to stand on these boards. And what God's word is, 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 is just as that clear, just as clear as Moses was in Deuteronomy 30. This life, this evil, this death. And God's word is clear to us. Yes, falling is potential for all of us. I wear my bathing suit when I go on the board. I put my phone in at something where it's not going to get soaked because I potentially still can fall. But if we take care and if we believe God's word and we put into practices those qualities from chapter 1, then we will never fall. Never fall. Now remember, once again, that this was the calling that Jesus gave to Peter. to strengthen his brothers in such a way that they would be established in the truth and stable and that they would never fall. Peter was tempted. Peter was tempted that night. Jesus said, you're going to be tempted. Satan is, is seeking out to sift you like wheat that night that he denied. But I pray that your faith would not fail. And he, Jesus says to Peter, says, but when you turn again, when you turn back to me, strengthen your brothers. And the same desire that Jesus had for Peter right before he died on the cross is the same desire that Peter has now for the beloved, for the church, for us in his word before he dies, that we would not fail, that we would remain stable and established. So from chapter 1, verse 12 to here, that the church would, would be strengthened and established to be firm and stable in the faith and in the gospel. Have you ever met someone who was unstable? I mean, I mean literally, you, you, pick, you can almost kind of have the, the mental picture of someone on a paddleboard, you know, doing this. And that's the picture of their life. That with every wind that comes blowing their way, they go with it. Every wave that comes their way, they, they, they go with it. They're shaken by everything. And you try to tell them, hey, if you lock your knees, you're going down. If you continue to look down, you're going to fall. But if you look forward, you won't. You're, you're watching them. Hey, just keep looking forward. And they don't listen. They don't listen to God's word in such a way that their life is just, un, is just unstable. And you try to tell them, trust in Christ. Look to his word. God is faithful. And they always say, yeah, but. But this is hard. This is difficult. Why would God do this to me? That's not the place that we are to be. We are to be stable. We're not meant to live in sinking sand. In Christ, through the power of gospel, we are to be built upon the foundation of his word. So guard yourselves. So let's get to the second point of the sermon this morning, and that is Peter tells them in his last words that in order to not fall away or to be carried into error by lawless teachers, he turns to a positive and that as Christians, we should continue to grow. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the biggest misconceptions about Christian discipleship is that we believe that it'll just happen. That discipleship and endurance 
sort of will happen by itself. But it doesn't. Endurance and discipleship does not happen outside of a vacuum. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen through osmosis. Now, I'm certainly not wanting to diminish the role of the Holy Spirit to keep us and to sustain us through our lives, in our lives. And the role of the Holy Spirit in discipleship, truly he is a great gift and is the reason why we endure and why we persevere and we flourish in Christ. But what I am saying is that the popular quote-unquote Christian principle, let go and let God, is not a biblical principle. Because the Bible is full of commands and calls and exhortations of Christians who are to pursue godliness. Here are the qualities, godliness, holiness, obedience, righteousness, steadfastness, maturity, love, brotherly affection, self-control, virtue, and knowledge. All comes through grace-driven effort. So if you don't want to lose your stability or, or fall in error as a Christian, then grow. And what does he say? Grow in grace. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, full circle, to the back to the beginning of the book. Peter's desire through the whole thing. He says in verse 2, the, the blessing that, that we are to be, he's blessing us with grace and peace that he wants multiplied to us in what? In the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, grow in grace. Now we know theologically and soteriologically that that this is that not only by God's grace alone, or that excuse me, that it is only by God's grace alone that we are saved. There's no works of our own that will save us, but it's only by God's grace, by the grace of God. But grace doesn't stop at salvation alone, because by his grace, we are also empowered to live the gospel life from the beginning to the end. Just as he says in chapter 1, verse 3, by God's grace, his divine power has been granted to us. That's grace pertaining to all things in life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us by his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world because of sinful desires. That's God's grace at, at work in us. Right? To become partakers of the divine nature, to move us and make us and shape us into godliness through the knowledge of him. Grace is the foundation of all of our Christian lives. And yet it is still an entire God's given gift to us. And we grow in it. We're nurtured in it, in God's word. And we're strengthened by it. We depend upon it. We, we pray for it. And secondly, he says, let us grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, the theme of 2 Peter. To grow in the knowledge of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 2 again. The blessing of what knowledge has been multiplied to us. Verse 3, his divine power is leveraged for us, growing in, that, in what? In knowledge. 5 and 6, growing in this knowledge is necessary for the Christian faith. In verse 8, only those who progress in it reveal the knowledge of Christ is actually fruitful. And as well, adversely, those who renounce Christ after they have come to know him are now worse off than those who have professed him. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. And so the knowledge that Peter is referring to us here, it's not, it's not just book knowledge. It's not like intellectual knowledge of reading a newspaper or reading a book and, and having facts and figures and ideas. But this knowledge is intellectual pursuit, academic, yes, but it's paired with personal experience. The experience of, 
of, of God's grace in knowing him. Knowing God and knowing Christ is what is necessary for us to stand fast and to be firmly fixed in the faith. This knowledge that we've seen throughout the book is what he's always wanting to remind us of and bring us back to because it is the anchor to our souls. It's what anchor us, anchors us down to stay in truth and away from error. You know, in a, in a world that is demanding relativism, it's demanding pluralism, how in the world do you expect to remain strong and stable away from error if we are not firmly fixing ourselves into the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord? How could you truly understand what peace is? It's if, you have, if you have no understanding, no biblical understanding of being forgiven of your treason against God. How could you understand what love is if you do not understand the objective reality of the cross and what Christ has done to pay the price as the Son of God who is our perfect substitute? How could you understand grace if sin is more satisfying? How can grace ever be needed if my own good works gets me where I need to go? This is why the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ is always the first thing to be attacked. It's always the first thing to be, to be belittled and to uh, undercut that foundation. Remember the first words of, of the evil one in the garden. Did he really say? That's an attack on their knowledge of God. But the Lord has given us the, the means by which we grow in him. And we know these. These are elementary. He's given us his, his word. Right? This is how we see, and this is how we learn, and this is how we hear and know him. There's no other source by which we come to know God in Christ Jesus than through his word. And if anyone says otherwise, they're the ones who are in lawless error, and you should run from them. He's given us his word to read it, to hear it, to study it, to meditate on it, to be under the preaching of it. And along with his word, praise God, he has given us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit indwells within every believer. His Holy Spirit, he calls us. And he regenerates us. And he gives us the faith to respond to the gospel. And he's always leading us to Christ. He's always boasting in Christ in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is leading us in righteousness and always pointing us to him, to Christ, in his word. He's not going to point to Christ in something else. But he's going to point to Christ in his word. Because that's where we know him intimately. And that's where we feel that knowledge. Lastly, he has given us each other. He's given us the church. The church is the primary place, as we've already said, where we hear the preaching of God's word. And through God's people, where does the Holy Spirit work? Through God's people in his church. So very simply, beloved, we avoid error and lawless teachers and we remain stable and we must always be growing in grace and always growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the means by which he has given us. They're sufficient. Why would we turn anywhere else or to, into anything else? And lastly, lastly, Peter's, of Peter's last words come in the form of a doxology. And he shows us that we're always to have this posture to glorify God and Jesus Christ and everything. 
verse 18, second half, he says, to him be the glory both now and for eternity, or in the day of eternity. Amen. Now, we've, we've read several doxologies throughout the Bible, notably in the New Testament. We'll read one at the end of our service. But just because it's at the end of a book or or we've heard them before doesn't mean we should ever get used to them. Or never should we, we lose sight of the weight of these words. I mean, literally, glory literally means weight. It literally means feel the burden, the weight of the glory of God. Feel it. So we should never lose sight of the weight of these things. They're not just words, but they're meant to draw us out at this very end of the book. To not look to ourselves, but to bring glory to Christ and to reflect a high view of Him. To look to Him. And you know what's unique about this doxology? that's different from so many others, is as it says, to the glory of him, meaning back to the object of our knowledge. In verse 18, our Savior Jesus Christ. He's not discounting God the Father by no means, but he is certainly affirming the Trinity. And he's affirming the the deity of Christ and the high view of Christ and that Jesus is the only one worthy to receive glory and honor. Brothers and sisters, he is worthy of your posture of your life to be directed to him for his glory alone. We did not save ourselves. And we will not persevere, or nor will we endure on our own. But rather by his grace, we grow in the knowledge of him for his glory and by his glory. And he alone deserves all the glory. We can boast in nothing but Christ. We boast in nothing but Christ. Now, as he says, and for all eternity. His name and his glory is that sufficient and that worthy to receive glory now and for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 10.31. If you don't have this verse memorized, I encourage you to memorize it today. So whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. And when I say your posture is to the glory of God, I mean what verse what 1 Corinthians 10:31 means. And that whatever you do, whether it be the most important tasks of your life, being a father to your children, dads, or being the mother to your children, or the husband, or the wife, or a friend, or a good church member. In those big things, the posture of your life is you do it to the glory of his name. And then to the menial tasks of life, whether you eat or whether you drink, do that for the glory of God. The most ordinary things. Let the posture of your life be to the glory of Christ. The posture of your hearts and your minds and your souls and your bodies be to the glory of God now into the day of eternity. These were the last words of Peter. And this doxology was somewhat the song that Peter would sing on his way to heaven. And brothers and sisters, may we, with all of our hearts, 
with all of our minds and with all of our souls be reminded once again that we want to do everything to the glory of God and the glory of Christ. And let that be our song. And so as we finish First and Second Peter this morning, again, let that song be forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are truly thankful for your word and how it has nurtured us and cared for us and continually shapes us, calls us beloved, reminding us the one who truly loves us, who has died for us. We pray, Lord, as, as we've gained this morning and learned this morning from your word, that we would be guarded, that you would lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil, but that we ourselves would not jump feet first into evil or to sin or to error. Grow us by your word. May the seeds that have been scattered even this morning produce such great fruit in our lives that, that have deep roots in us. And that we would glorify you. so grateful for your work, so grateful for your salvation, so thankful for your son that as your people we turn to you in a posture of just glorifying you. Not I, but Christ. And we thank you for these things. And all God's people say, and amen.